This program is presented by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Hello, I'm Sarah Gregory, and today I'm talking with Dr. Alison Peel, a senior research fellow at Griffith University in Queensland, Australia. We'll be discussing a novel Hendra virus variant in Australia. Welcome to the EID podcast, Dr. Peel. Thank you very much, Sarah. It's great to talk to you. Hendra virus is pretty new. Tell us about it. So Hendra virus is a virus that is circulating naturally in uh, flying fox or fruit bat populations in Australia. And actually, it's not so new in itself. Other than uh, rabies virus, it was one of the really first of these sort of emerging uh, bat viruses that we've been focused on um, over the last little while. It came before Nipah virus and coronaviruses and many filoviruses in bats. It was actually first discovered uh, 28 years ago in 1994. So we've been studying it for a little while now here in Brisbane. So it became very well known very quickly at that time because it caused an outbreak in some stables here in Brisbane, actually in the, in the suburb of Hendra, and that's how it became known as Hendra virus. And in that outbreak, there were um, 20 horses that either died or were euthanized with this really mysterious illness. And then unfortunately, also a, uh, a stable hand and a trainer became infected from those horses and died. And so there was a lot of attention on it. Uh, initially, it was obviously a very scary new virus at the time. And so we've been working hard since that time to to understand, you know, what it is, where it comes from and, and how it circulates. Uh, and it took a couple of years to identify that the, the natural host of that virus was, was the flying foxes that are present within this area of Australia. I see. Okay, so what are the signs and symptoms and how serious is it? So in the flying foxes themselves, the natural hosts, they don't seem to have any signs or symptoms at all that we can observe. So they tend to coexist with the virus quite easily. But in horses, it can cause quite serious disease. So it can cause a range of signs that um, can be difficult to distinguish from other you know, horse ailments. But generally, the main signs are either neurological nervous system signs, sort of staggering unstableness um, or collapse or respiratory signs, so whether they have a nasal discharge, difficulty breathing, um, and things like that. Some of the key findings often are that there, there can be a fever and a, a very acute or rapid progression to very serious diseases that are often either ends up in, uh, in death of the horse or by euthanasia on, on welfare grounds. And about 75% of the horses that are infected um, end up dying. In humans, in, in people, the symptoms can be similar to what we see in horses in the neurological signs. And again, it's, it's highly fatal. Four of the seven people uh, that are known to have affected have died from the virus. Okay, so as you said, we first became aware of it when horses started getting it, and then these seven people got it, presumably from the horses. So where did the horses get it? So horses contract the virus from flying foxes. And we haven't directly observed transmission. It's um, you know it's generally very difficult to observe that actual transmission event. It could be a number of routes, but we think that the most likely route is um, from flying fox urine because when we test flying foxes and look where the where the virus is excreted, um, urine is the most um, you know commonly detected route of excretion from flying foxes. So flying foxes, you know, are, are naturally distributed within this part of Australia. And they will feed on native or as well as introduced food trees that occur in horse paddocks. And so that we think that flying foxes are, are feeding in these trees, um, urinating either on, onto the ground and contaminating the, the, the pastures or into food troughs uh, for the horses that might be underneath the trees. 
or potentially even with direct contact that are directly urinating on top of a, a curious horse that might be also in the area at the same time. So we think that the horses um, either sort of breathe in aerosols of the virus from the pasture as they're you know, sniffing around and that's how the virus gets into their system. So respiratory rather than um, gastronomically. Yes, yeah, we think that that's most likely. Horses have a really large tidal volume. They have large airways and breathe in and out a lot of air in, in every given breath. And so that's sort of a, a good uh, route of entry for viruses, I think. So your study is specifically about a new variant of Hendra virus. Uh, a few years ago, most people would not have even heard of the word variant, but now it's a pretty common word with COVID. How is this strain different from the previous Hendra virus? Yeah, that's that's a good point about the the differences between variants and strains and and some of the complicated terminology sometimes and and sometimes there can be very very much grey areas in in terms of what's considered a strain and what's considered a variant. But we, we talk about this new Hendra variant as sort of as a variant. It is close enough to the Hendra that we have known about for decades that we can consider it part of the same viral species, just like the different variants of SARS coronavirus two that causes COVID are all part of. The, the same species. But between the, the original Hendra and this new variant of Hendra, when we look across the whole genome of the virus and all the individual base pairs, there's about 83% similarity of the individual bases, which doesn't sound, you know, super similar. But when, when you look at how these sequences come together to create the viral proteins, and which is how they sort of interact with you know, the, the infected animal's um, immune system um, and, and viral entry and, and things, they're actually much more similar. So between the, the original and the, and the new variant, there's about 93% similarity. And so work by some of my um, collaborators and, and their co-authors on our recent study has shown that the crucial sites for um, interaction with the immune system, the two variants are virtually indistinguishable. So that we think that both the, the bat immune system and the horse or the immune system of people sees these two variants in much the same way. So is the geographic range different in this variant and where is it as opposed to the original one? So this is this is a big question of uh, what we've been trying to investigate and I think uh, there is still some work to be done here. So a lot of our understanding of Hendra comes from a very big study um, that was conducted by the Australian and some state governments here between about 2012 and about 2015, where there was a, a very large sampling effort looking to sample flying fox roosts across much of the east coast of Australia, from Sydney up further north up to Cairns, and sampling flying fox roosts um, every month or every couple of months over a number of years. And from that, we got a really good indication of when and where a Hendra virus is circulating, that it tends to circulate um, most commonly in wintertime in the, in the lower parts of that range and in some tropical, whereas it can be present any time of the year, particularly further north. But it seems like there, there wasn't any detection of the Hendra virus south of Sydney. And that seemed to correlate with the extent of the range of a particular species of flying fox, the black flying fox. And from some other studies, it was presumed or, you know, deducted that the black flying foxes were a, a key reservoir for, for Hendra virus. And so much of our understanding about the distribution of Hendra virus then became, I guess, limited to the extent of the range of the black flying fox. And there have been very few studies further south than Sydney. There was one study, however, down um, on the south coast of Australia, down near, near Melbourne in, in Victoria, which did study a, a, a population of a, a different species of flying fox, the grey-headed flying fox. 
and for again over a number of years and did not find hendrovirus at any time down there in that route. So that that seemed to confirm our understanding that that the distribution was was further north in Australia. But the recent findings um, of this new variant include some detections in in flying foxes, in tissue samples from flying foxes, that it was detected um, down in this southern area, down in Victoria and also South Australia. And so that really, uh, I guess, causes to you know, re-examine our, our previous findings of the original strain and, and look more carefully for this new variant across other areas. So we have started to sample across a, a broader distribution, but we still have a lot more sampling to do to really have a conclusive understanding about the, the full extent of the range. Uh, okay. You said something about across all seasons. Is it seasonal or is it year-round? So, again, again, it's, sort of a, it's not easy to answer definitively. Absolutely, in, in the range where we see most of the hendrovirus spillovers and, and particularly in the, in the last decade or so in subtropical areas of Australia, so around Brisbane where I am and a, a little bit further south and north, the spillovers are much more prominent in wintertime. I think sort of probably about 90, 90 plus percent of the spillovers um, occur in wintertime in this re- region. But the virus is circulating occasionally at, at other times. And so for horse owners and veterinarians, there certainly should be an awareness that the virus can be around at any time of the year. But certainly the conditions that, that really drive the spillover from flying foxes to horses seem predominant in, in this area um, in wintertime. Now, further north in Australia, up around, I guess, you know, listeners might have heard of Cairns up in the northern parts of the Great Barrier Reef area. The the climate up there is, you know, it's closer to the equator. It's it's more of a wet, dry season um, type of climate compared to here, down here in Brisbane. And we see that the, the seasonality there is less clearly defined. There's no strong seasonality in either the excretion of, of hendrovirus from flying foxes up there or the detection of the, the spillovers themselves. And then as for the the new variant itself, that's something that we're just beginning to look into. The detections in flying fox tissues have come from various times of the the year, including in the peak of summertime. And in our study where we also looked at detections of the new variant around Queensland and and New South Wales, we did find most of the detections occurring around wintertime, but also some detections at other times of the year as well. So that seems, I guess, um, in some ways consistent with the original variant. Uh, You mentioned a couple of different kinds of um, flying foxes, which for the listeners are bats. Clarify for us, which, which flying foxes are we talking about? Sure, yes. So Australia has four flying fox species present on, on the mainland of Australia. So that's the little red flying fox, the grey-headed flying fox, the black flying fox and the spectacled flying fox. And they're all uh, beautiful creatures that play critical roles in pollinating and um, dispersing seeds of our native forest and conducting that on a long distance sort of pollination to seed dispersion and much further than sort of birds or, or insects would do. So they're really important to our ecosystem. And so they each have a particular range and um, ecological niche that, you know, and, and specialising in different areas. Now, the original hendrovirus strain and the new variants as well across the two have been detected in tissue samples from all of those four species. As I mentioned earlier, the urine is the pathway where we expect the transmission to, to horses occurs. And so when we actually look at which species have been detected to be excreting virus in the urine, then the black flying fox and, and spectacled flying fox, as I said, in the more northern parts of the range, have appeared to be the, the main reservoir host. 
But for the new variant, we can see that also the, the grey-headed flying fox appears to be excreting the virus as well, and their, their distribution extends much further south than the other species. So that is a consideration when we're, when we're thinking about risk as well. So there was a fourth flying fox that does not carry it, as far as you know. Which one was that? Sure. Uh, yeah, so the, the spectacled flying fox, it's actually a critically endangered species, or it's, it's currently listed as endangered, but it, it qualifies as critically endangered. It's, its populations have declined um, rapidly uh, over the last few years. And uh, there's been fewer studies in that species because it's a um, much smaller population. But it does appear that it can excrete the original Hendra virus in its urine, but it hasn't been studied for the new variant yet. So would any bat be able to carry it? Uh, any flying fox anywhere, like spread to uh, India, and those bats be able to carry it, do you think? Sure. So the type of virus, the Hendra virus, is classified as the Hendra virus, and, and the word Hendra comes from the combination of Hendra virus and Nipah virus, which are two, um, I guess, flagship species of the group and the first detected. And so both those two species come from from flying foxes, which are Tarotus species bats. And we know that there's been an, a number of different related viruses within that group of viruses. And we think that they're probably predominantly restricted to that Taroka species group. Now, one of the questions is how much what we call species specificity does each bat species have its own virus species that it tends to be associated with um, and circulate independently? Or is there cross-species transmission where a particular virus can circulate amongst multiple species of bats? Now, for for Hendra virus, that does seem to be the case. As I just discussed, we've detected Hendra virus across di the different Tarota species here in Australia. But we, we do think that, that there are few, some geographical limits to that because of the presence of Nipah virus in, in um, Bangladesh and, and Malaysia, and then some serological findings in, for example, Papua New Guinea and Indonesia, indicating that there are probably other similar viruses in those regions. And so I think there's probably some immunological barriers as well as the geographical barriers for these viruses to be, you know, spreading across continents. But if you were to attempt to infect any of these bats with any of these given viruses in a laboratory setting, then, yeah, I'm sure that they could be infected. There have been some studies that have tried to infect, you know, Australian bats with, with Nipah virus, for example, and, you know, we can learn a lot from those infections, but really what we're talking about is, you know, natural infections and natural spread, and I think there are some, some barriers to that. These viruses have co-evolved with these bats over a long period of time and, uh, you know, to some extent settled into their routines, I think. Why don't the bats get sick from the virus? So that also links to the co-evolution over a long period of time. So all animals, including people, we have we have viruses that we carry around every day that we don't even know that we're infected with um, and have little impact on us. And and those that is because we, yeah we have co-evolved with the viruses um, over a long period of time, and our immune system and the virus can exist within our bodies without causing too much detriment that our um, immune system sort of needs to get rid of them immediately. And so it's just the, the same with bats. Viruses have co-evolved with the bats over long periods of time and there is no illness created from them by that sort of battle with the immune system. What was the event that brought about this study? As I mentioned earlier, these bats and these viruses have been a, a focus of study over a number of years since Hendra virus was first detected. They're also increasingly living in, in urban areas in Australia and so 
there are, you know, studies associated with that. And one of the impacts that they can suffer partially as a result of that increasing urbanisation is an effect of extreme heat that is becoming increasing with climate change and also with the, the heat uh, islands of, of cities and urban areas. And so in 2013, I think it was, in Adelaide in South Australia, in the southern part of Australia, there was an extreme heat event with temperatures over 42 degrees and a large number of, of bats died in that event because they just are not evolved to cope with those extreme temperatures. And as part of a follow-up to that event, a number of bats were submitted to uh, one of our national laboratories for some broad surveillance testing. And as part of that, an interesting finding was that one of these bats seemed to be testing negative with one of the main test assays for Hendra virus, but positive on another version of that test, which was an unusual finding and that caused some, some follow-up. And some follow-up of that individual result identified that it seemed to be a virus that was closely related to, to Hendra virus, but it was different. But the amount of genetic material, the, the length of the sequence that could be obtained was quite short. And so it was, it was difficult to place that finding into context and, and really understand what it meant. So that, that finding sort of sat there for a number of years. And then more recently, there a group who I know you've spoken to, Dr. Ed Annans, who is one of the members of the Horses of Sentinels group here in Australia, who is a research group that is investigating horses that have died with symptoms that uh, appear to be consistent with Hendra virus, but were testing negative on the, on the Hendra virus assay. And so that group were interested in uh, understanding what other viruses were circulating in horses that might be causing these signs. And as part of that investigation, they found a horse that had died in 2015 that had tested negative to the Hendra virus using the Hendra virus assay. But when they did some more advanced sequencing from samples from that horse, they found a whole genome sequence of this new Hendra virus variant. And then they were able to determine that this sequence was, in fact, a variant of Hendra virus and very closely related and almost identical to that sequence that had been identified in the flying fox several years earlier. And so that was, I guess, really a really important finding to, to help us understand that there was this other type of Hendra that was circulating within bat populations and that would have been missed by the common uh, diagnostic assays that were being used at the time. And so the diagnostic assays needed to be revised so that we could start to, to look more broadly for, for what other variants were out there. And that really prompted our study. So tell us about your study, what you were looking for within all that stuff you just said, and how did you conduct it? So as I said, this finding that those two groups had come up with really, I, I guess, identified that, yes, there was another variant that was causing deaths, or at least one death in, in horses, and that it appeared to be in, in tissue samples from flying fox in a region of Australia that we would not usually consider to be high risk for Hendra virus spillover. And so from my perspective, there was, I guess, an epidemiological gap between those two findings that was whether the flying foxes were actually excreting the viruses in urine and, and creating that opportunity for spillover to horses. Now, it's something that we would expect, but it's something that needed to be tested to be certain. And so our study was looking to screen large numbers of flying fox urine samples from mainly two different species, the black flying fox and, and grey-headed flying fox, to see if we could see whether um, that uh, new variant was being excreted in, in urine. And then also to answer a broader question about is this variant acting in the same way as the original variant 
can we apply all of our understanding that we have about Hendra virus over the last 28 years to this new variant as well? Or is it something quite different that we need to consider differently? What were your conclusions? So we, we ended up screening over 6,000 uh, urine samples uh, from flying foxes over a number of years. And the main findings from our paper were that both the species that we studied, the black flying fox and the grey-headed flying fox, do excrete the, the Hendra virus variant in their urine and posing that risk to horses. And so this study expanded the known distribution of this new variant in flying foxes. The previous detections had been in the in southern parts of Australia, in Victoria and, and South Australia, and we extended that to include Queensland and New South Wales. And it provided that epidemiological link for me with those previous findings. The other conclusion was related to the prevalence of, of detection. So in our classic sort of original hendrovirus strain work, we, we typically, across all of our samples, across different seasons, on average, have been getting detections at about 7% of our samples. But the really surprising component of this work was that we only detected 10 positive samples out of about 6,000 that we tested. So that's a prevalence of about 0.1%. So that was a much lower prevalence than we were expecting. And we need to do some further work to understand what that means. It may be that tr this variant it truly is circulating at a, a much lower rate or sort of a prevalence within the population compared to the original uh, Hendra and it's just a, a rarer variant and is circulating but is not dominant in the, in the circulation. Or it may be a, a byproduct of some you know, um, biases in our, in our sampling structure. Our sampling was conducted as part of a much broader long-term study and, and that long-term study had a, a predominant focus on the black flying fox as the, considered the main host of the original variant. And we had included very few grey-headed flying foxes within our study. And so it may be that this new variant is actually circulates at, at high prevalences within uh, grey-headed flying foxes, and that would require further studies, you know, specifically on that species to identify that. Okay. W were there any other surprises? So I think overall the low prevalence was a big surprise to me, and the detection in the black flying fox, I, I guess, was not necessarily a surprise, but an interesting finding. As I said, in the previous work, a lot of people had worked very hard to look for the, the classic variant in grey-headed flying foxes and not found it. And so there were thoughts that there may have been some species specificity of, of that particular variant. And so there was potentially some expectation that we might have seen the same thing with this new variant, but that turned out not to be the case. What about challenges in doing this study? Were there any, many, none? Oh, there's always plenty of challenges, yes. <laughs> Lots of challenges. I mean, I think that we were fortunate in that, that with the timing of when this variant was detected was towards the end of a large, you know, four-year study that we had been conducting, collecting samples from flying foxes across southeast Queensland and, and northeast New South Wales. And so there were many, many challenges in, in obtaining those samples in the first hand and, and collecting them from the field. Lots of fun out in the field and, and field work, but um, of course, many challenges along the way as well. But we were fortunate with this particular study that we had that sample bank ready to go, sitting in the lab. Uh, the RNA had been already been extracted in the samples. And so then when our collaborators came to us with this new viral assay for the new Hendra virus uh, variant, they were ready to go. And we, um, my collaborators at the Rocky Mountain Laboratories in the U.S., in Montana, greened you know, that very large number of samples in uh, very rapidly so that we could get these results. Do you think the virus is 
more widespread than is currently known? I think you're saying that. So further studies are needed, and what do you think is going to be found? Any guesses? I think it would definitely be more widespread than is currently being detected. We would expect that it would be circulating within the range of the species that we have detected it in. So flying foxes are highly mobile um, nomadic animals. They can travel, you know, hundreds of kilometres in a night if they're, they're moving from, from one roost or one feeding area to another. And so the mixing of the population across their distribution is significant. And so I think if we detect it in a particular species in one part of the range, then I think it could be expected across all of the range. So across the species that the variant has been detected in, to date includes basically all of the east coast of Australia, uh, part of the south coast and across the north part of Australia, north coast of Australia as well. The original paper that detected the variant in flying fox tissues also got one low positive detection in the other species, in the little red flying fox, which is distributed across much of central Australia as well. But that detection was a, a low positive and it wasn't able to be confirmed. And so we need to do more studies in that species. You mentioned further studies. What would you recommend? So I think one of the big questions that remains still is what the prevalence is of this virus in other sample sets and other other parts of Australia. And so I think the next step would be to uh, undertake a similar study or similar surveillance of samples from southern parts of Australia looking for the Hendra variant in urine from, from grey-headed flying foxes. And that will really help shape our understanding of the risk of Hendra virus spillover to people in those areas and and um, including a better understanding of the seasonality in those lower latitudes because we just can't assume that our understanding about the seasonality of Hendra virus in Brisbane is going to be the same about the seasonality of the Hendra virus in those other parts of Australia. And so that would be a, a, a key recommendation for me. And this is a pretty terrible virus. Is there a way to contain the spread of it? So thankfully, there tends to be fairly limited ongoing transmission between horses now, although the original outbreak of Hendra virus was in a stable setting and resulted in that rapid transmission and a large number of horses dying. Otherwise, outbreaks have been confined to small numbers of horses, you know, often only one, sometimes two or three. Thankfully, it's not a case of one outbreak sort of, you know, becoming a, a major epidemic. The way to, you know, prevent the infection in horses and then also by proxy into, into people as well is through vaccination of horses, that there is a Hendra virus vaccine that has been available since 2012, and although, you know, as with any vaccine, there are, there are some people who are not, you know, convinced on its safety. It is used widely and it is very safe. And there have been no Hendra virus cases in vaccinated horses. And so it really is the most effective, single most effective action that people can take to protect them, their horses and their, themselves and their families and their veterinarians from this nasty virus. For people who have been exposed to a horse that has been Hendra virus infected and are likely to be at risk of infection, there are also monoclonal antibodies that are available to, to treat those people to try and prevent infection. And since those have been uh, in use, there haven't been any further human cases. All right. So we have vaccinated horses with a great vaccine, but there are some horses that aren't vaccinated. 
and uh, I guess uh, antiviral if you know you've been exposed, but uh, maybe you don't know you've been exposed. So just basically, how should vets protect themselves from catching it? Yeah, so ideally the, the best point of prevention would be to stop horses from becoming infected in the first place. But if there is a horse where a vet considers hendrovirus to be a risk, so that would be an unvaccinated horse showing many sort of vague signs, you know, neurological or respiratory signs or fever or even colic-like signs. The best precautions that can be taken to protect themselves would be wearing full PPE, masks, eye shields and Tyvek suits, for example, and taking general hygiene precautions when dealing with that horse. Now, that can be challenging. Horses can be booked by that kind of equipment. And sometimes vets are, are wary of, you know, donning that equipment in front of owners. But it really is a case of, of talking with owners and communicating the potential seriousness uh, of hendrovirus and that they are precautions that need to be taken for the, for the vet's safety to, for them to be able to adequately, you know, assess and treat their horse. There's apparently a group called Bat One Health. Let's tell us about that. Yes, there is indeed a, a group called Bat One Health. That's a group that I'm a member of. It's an international group of researchers bringing in people from a range of different disciplines. We study pathogen emergence, particularly from bats, and the transmission of those pathogens between bats themselves and also, as I said, that spillover transmission or cross-species transmission into other bridging hosts and into people. So a lot of our work brings in that One Health framework and, and One Health is a, a recognition that the health of wild animals and domestic animals, the environment and the people and people is all intertwined. And so we can't, you know, only focus on, on human health, you know, problems within the world without a recognition that it is heavily driven by the health of our environment and, and the animals that we interact with. So our work, we understand that for pathogens to uh, cross from wildlife hosts in, into people, there are a number of barriers that must be crossed for that to occur. And so, for example, we need to understand the wildlife host, um, where it is circulating and their ecology and what viruses they host. The virus needs to be excreted or released from that wildlife host. And then it needs to survive in the environment for a period of time and come into contact with a new host and evade that new host immune system to, for a successful spillover to occur. I guess our philosophy is that if we can understand the processes happening at each of those layers or each of those barriers in, in that process, that we can identify the best points to intervene. Because if you can stop that process at any part of the way, we can stop that sort of uh, spillover of, of new pathogens from, from wildlife into people. And so to do that, we have field-based studies and laboratory-based studies and mathematical modelling and statistical modelling approaches, bringing all those components together to you know, understand those processes and ultimately aim to, to prevent spillover from occurring and take actions that are, have the sustainability of wildlife and the environment in mind and have both win-wins for, for the environment and for people. Uh, tell us about your job, how you became involved in the study, uh, in your work in general, and in Bat One Health. So I'm a, uh, a veterinarian by training. I worked in, in practice for a few years before uh, turning to research. I've always been interested in wildlife, and uh, when I did my uh, PhD at the University of Cambridge in, in England, I was lucky to be in the right place at the right time to be given the opportunity to study viruses in, in um, a particular bat species in Africa. And it was around the time that sort of interest in, in bat viruses was just emerging. 
So I came to that field of study with an interest, I guess, in, in the viruses and, and, you know, the general wildlife virus component of it. But since working with fruit bats in that case and, and, and flying foxes since then, so this is since about 2008 now, you know, I've really developed a, a, a wonderful appreciation of what's fascinating and critical species that bats are in our environment. And, and I've really enjoyed sort of ongoing learning about the ecology and the behaviour and the movement ecology and feeding ecology of the species as well. And so my involvement in this particular study came when I, I moved back to Australia in about 20, 2013 and, and started working with some key collaborators here, uh, Dr Peggy Eby and, and Dr Raina Plowright and Professor Hamish McCallum, who were working on our study species and in Hendra virus at the time. And, and I have been working with those people ever since. So right now, I guess my role as a senior research fellow, I guess my discipline is in disease ecology. Um, so that's understanding how diseases or pathogens circulate or change dynamically within populations and understanding the, the drivers of that dynamic. And I really enjoy that aim for that deep understanding of the mechanism because I think that is crucial to intervention and making predictions of, of what's going to happen, happen moving forward. So I've been a lead uh, PI on on our large Bat One Health program in, for the Australia team, leading a, um, a large field program over the last four years or so, and, and we're in the process of analysing all the wonderful data that we've been collecting over that time. So there's, there's more, more information to come. Well, that's good to hear because we need it. So on a personal level, Australia, Australia is obviously a huge country with a lot of different areas and climates, as we discussed. Where do you live and what do you enjoy most about living there? So I live in Brisbane, which is about halfway down the east coast of Australia. I actually grew up in Sydney, so that's a bit, a bit further south, but I live in Brisbane, it's about a thousand kilometres further north. So it's a, it's a bit more sort of a humid sub, subtropical climate compared to where I grew up in. But our, our winter often hovers around, um, you know, 20 degrees during the day uh, in winter, which I think is about 68 Fahrenheit or so. So it's a pretty pleasant place to live. And one of the, um, I think, the really nice parts that I've enjoyed about sort of since living here for the last um, eight years or so is uh, the amount of wildlife that's present around the city. And uh, I live not not too far from the city, but I'm actually looking out my window at the moment at a a rainbow lorikeet feeding on um, one of the native bushes that I've got in my backyard. We've got possums and snakes and frogs and all sorts of creatures that, um, yeah, sort of integrated within, within the urban environment here. And flying foxes, of course. Of course. Well, thank you for taking the time to talk with me today, Dr. Peel. Thank you, Sarah. It's been a pleasure. And I want to mention here, as Dr. Peel mentioned, um, Dr. Edward Anand, we did a podcast with him a couple of weeks ago called Sentinel Surveillance Shows Novel Hendra Virus in Horses in Australia. So listeners might want to look for that also. And you can read the May 2022 article, Novel Hendra Virus Variant Circulating in Black Flying Foxes and Gray-Headed Flying Foxes Australia, online at cdc.gov eid. I'm Sarah Gregory for Emerging Infectious Diseases. For the most accurate health information, visit cdc.gov or call 1-800-CDC-INFO. 